0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Um, I, I mentioned this during the, the first, first service, and I, uh, I, I feel compelled to, to mention it again um, because it's true. I, I am really and truly thankful uh, to be able to be with you guys this morning. Um, this church this body of believers and the leadership here, it, it holds a, an incredibly special place in my heart. And uh, like you mentioned, it has been almost four years since we planted King's Church in Conroe, and I, I, I regularly think back on my time here with, with gratitude. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be here. I, I' learned so much while I was here, and um, I consider it an honor and a privilege uh, to be able to stand behind the pulpit and preach to you all this morning. And so preach, I will. And so we're going to be ultimately thinking about something very important to all of us, something important to who we are as followers of Christ. This morning, we're going to be talking about worship. And I'm going to call this message, Gospel-Centered Worship, Because it is so foundational to who we are as the church, as the body of Christ. And I want to be clear that when I use that word worship, I don't just mean music that we hear on Sunday mornings or the songs that we sing together, right? Sometimes when we hear the word worship, that's kind of what we think. That is worship, but that's not all that worship is. When I use the word, I mean something that encompasses all of life. Because worship is all-encompassing. And we're going to be seeing this this morning in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now, we're actually going to end up jumping around to a few different places. But we're going to begin here in Romans chapter 12. A key point in this book where Paul moves from, from describing to us the glories of God's grace for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to helping us to see what that grace produces in us. That all happens right here in Romans chapter 12. And though I I am, I apologize, going to be reading from the ESV, I'm stuck in my ways. I'm I'm reading from the ESV, but the the verses will be up on the screen, so you'll be able to, to follow along there. And even though it is just one verse we're beginning with, verse 1 of chapter 12, I'd still like to ask you if you are able to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul, by the Spirit, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to gather with one another. And to sing your praises and to, to pray to you and to ultimately hear your word. And I pray that as we walk through the truth that you have revealed to us in the scripture, that it would penetrate down to the core of our hearts and that none of us would leave here unchanged. I pray you would conform us to the image of Jesus and that in all things, Christ would be exalted. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the first things that stands out there and the words of Paul that we just read is a sense of urgency. You actually get this right from the very beginning. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or literally brothers and sisters. He's saying, I appeal, I, I urge you. I implore you. Bound up in that word is the idea of a a heartfelt earnestness. And so this new section of the book of Romans, that's how Paul chooses to begin. And of course, in the rest of verse 1, he will go on to say what is so important. Ultimately, that in light of the gospel of Jesus, we are called to worship the Lord. That's his appeal. Worship is what he's talking about. You see, ultimately, Paul's not one to hide his emotions from us. We know that because we know it and see it when he's angry with the Corinthians or when he's exasperated with the Galatians or when he's praising the Philippians. He often lets us know how he feels. It's no different here in Romans 12, 1, where we see leaping from the first couple of words a a deep sense of importance and urgency in his exhortation to the Romans. And ultimately, that means to all of us. We are called to worship God. Called to worship God. But there's another place another place where we see this just as beautifully, maybe more so, and we see it from the mouth of Jesus himself. We're not, we're not done with Romans. We're going to come back to this, but I want us to get a sense of, of the importance of this call on our lives to worship God, and so it is seen very clearly in John chapter 4. Do you want to look there with me? John chapter 4. Now, in the context of John 4, Jesus is making his way up to Galilee, and on the way he stops by a well in a little Samarian town. As he does, he meets a Samaritan woman and they begin talking. Now, listen, Samaritans at the time, this might be helpful to know, they were neighbors of the Israelites. But the two groups of people didn't get along very well. They didn't like each other very much. And at least part of that had to do with the fact that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So the Pentateuch, that's all that they held to as scripture. And so because of that, they had actually come to believe that the people of God were supposed to worship in an entirely different place. So they didn't worship in Jerusalem as the rest of the Old Testament commanded God's people. And this Samaritan woman, as she's talking with Jesus, I guess feeling particularly bold this afternoon, she decides to bring up this difference that she has with Jesus. You see this in verse 20. Look at this with me. John chapter 4 verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right, that's the context. And it is into that context regarding these differing places of worship that Jesus responds with something that is, that is utterly paradigm-shifting. And that's not hyperbole. Right. That's not just preaching rhetoric. It's, it's truly paradigm-shifting what he has to say here. You see it in verse 21. He says, Woman, not a term of disrespect. Woman, believe me... The hour is coming when neither on this mountain where you worship nor in Jerusalem where the Israelites worship will you worship the Father. He says the hour is coming where the place where you worship isn't going to matter anymore. Why? Verse 23. Because the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is saying here that the hour is coming. In fact, the hour is now here, right? This new age is dawning. It's truly going to kick off with the death and resurrection, but it has already begun in his life. That's the new hour that he's talking about. And this new hour will be inaugurated on the cross. And when it does, it will create a time when true worshipers, he says, when true worshipers don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. Because they can worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that's a reference to the Holy Spirit there who comes to indwell all believers. Jesus is saying here that in light of the gospel, in light of what he is going to do, in light of this new hour that he is inaugurating through his work on the cross, worship will be a work of the spirit in our lives according to the truth of who God is. It'll be internal. It'll be focused on the Father, by the power of the Spirit, based upon the work of the Son. It is Trinitarian worship. Because, you see, the reality is, what Jesus has done, or because of what Jesus has done, He pours out His Spirit on all who will believe in Him. And the Spirit within us, then, enables us to properly worship God. And he says at the end of verse 23, and this is so important, the end of verse 23, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's what he wants. That's what God desires. God wants his people to worship him in spirit and truth. He he wants gospel-centered worship. This is why Paul, back in Romans 12, this is why he's speaking with such urgency. Because this is what God wants of us. And we need to know that this has always, always been God's desire. This is always what God has wanted from us all the way back from the beginning. You see, we are called to worship God because we were originally created to worship God. We were created to worship. You can go all the way back to the garden and see this. I'm not going to turn there, but if you did, you'd see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where we read that God makes all people. He makes men and women in his image, right? That's the word that's used there. And that word image, it's, it's so, so important for defining who it is we are. Because being created in the image of God is a way of saying that we have been created to reflect the truth of who God is. We've been created to represent Him in the world through our devotion to Him. You could say it like this, being made in the image of God is kind of like wearing a little sign around your neck that says, "Reserve." I belong to God. I've been set apart for him. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's worship. It is living devoted to God. Living to bring him glory. Living to please him. And that's what it means to be made in his image. We were made to be worshipers from the very beginning. I've always loved the way the, the Westminster Catechism puts it when it asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were created, to be devoted to God. You can even see this in some of the other words that are used in those first couple of chapters. He, he puts Adam in the garden and he tells him to work the garden and to keep it. Don't throw those words away. They're important. Words that later come up to refer to the priests in the temple who are charged to work at keeping the temple set apart for God, committed to him, so that all the things in the temple are devoted solely to bringing him praise. I think you see it when he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with God worshipers. Isaiah mentions it later. Isaiah 43, when he says God's people have been created for his glory. And it's at the heart of the psalmist when he cries out, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. All people were made to glorify God. To praise him and live our lives devoted to him. And listen, this this isn't just some sort of vanity project like God's just kind of out there making people worship him because he's got a big ego or something. No, we are called and created to worship him because he is worthy of worship. He's worth it. And back in the garden, at least in the beginning, things seemed to be going so well. Adam and Eve living in obedience to the word of God, completely devoted to him and their lives. Until... Serpent came along and deceived Adam and Eve and convinced them that they ought to be worshiping something else. Themselves. They turned that worship away from God inward. Right now they know what's best. Now they know what's right and wrong. They can decide for themselves how it is they're supposed to live their lives. You you know, God's just been holding us back. They sinned. And their fall into sin has tainted the whole human race with them. And that includes all of us. Now, we still bear the image of God. Let's be clear. We bear the image of God as human beings. But because of sin, that, that, that image is distorted. And that means that we still, deep down, we still feel the need to worship It's just not God we worship anymore. At least not left to ourselves. It's idols and the the false gods of our own making. That's what we worship. That's our condition. We are a people who were created to worship. And yet who because of sin worship something other than God. And it is that predicament. That leads the father out of love to send his son to die on the cross. To redeem us and to reconcile us and to restore all that sin has damaged. And so Christ comes as our substitute, taking all of our sin upon himself and giving us his righteous standing, and that is ours by faith. But listen, and and this is important. That's not the only thing that the gospel says to us. That's kind of like looking at the gospel rightly with a zoom lens. You're, You're zooming in and you're looking at Jesus on the cross bearing the weight and the wrath and the penalty that my sin deserves for me. Glorious. But when you back up, and you look at what he's he's doing with a a, a wide-angle lens, you see that he is actually at work doing even more. Not less, more. He's he's fixing what was broken. He's restoring us to a right relationship with God. He's, He's setting us apart. He's enabling us to live our lives now devoted to God as we were originally meant to do. Jesus is bringing us back into the family of God. And so the gospel provides forgiveness of sins through faith. And it also promises us new lives. New lives that by the power of the Spirit can once again rightly acknowledge God for who he is. And because of that, worship him and be devoted to him. That's that's the story of Scripture. created to worship, sin messes it up. And in the gospel, God is at work recreating us so that we might return to what we were intended for. That's another important thing for us to grasp here. You see, in Jesus, we are recreated to worship. We are recreated in Christ to worship. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to point out one or two examples here. You can see it in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But in the very last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, as John is told by an angel, or he's shown a vision of the returning Jesus. Jesus is coming back, John. And he's, he's so amazed by this. Jesus is going to come back and he's going, to, he's going to finish what the good news of the gospel began. And in response to this message, he, he falls down and he begins to worship the angel. And this is how the angel responds. Revelation 22, 9. He says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets. With those who keep the words of this book. I, I'm a fellow servant. Instead... Worship God. Last chapter of the Bible. What a a great way for it to send us off with the command, Worship God. That is the right response to the grace of God in the gospel. We saw it already in John 4. And we saw it maybe most clearly, and we'll turn back there now in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We'll go back to this verse. I mentioned earlier that verse 1 here of chapter 12 marks a major shift in the letter. I want you to notice that there towards the beginning, after he says, I appeal to you, he uses the word therefore, which tells you that what he says here is true on the basis of what came before it therefores in Scripture are important. And in this case, what he says is true literally because of everything that came before it. This verse is the turning point in the book of Romans where he moves from focusing specifically on what God has done in Christ to save us to how it is that we are to respond to that grace. That's what he's talking about now how we are to respond to the gospel. That's why he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, look at that, by the mercies of God. All of what comes next, all of what he is about to say is based upon and built on God's mercy toward us in Christ. That's the foundation. Which, by the way, is the entire thrust of the book of Romans up to this point. That God justifies sinners in Christ by faith as an act of his loving and gracious mercy. That's, that's the book of Romans. It's the gospel. And now we see what the right response to the gospel ought to be. What grace recreates us to be. Worshippers. But look at how he says it. This is interesting. In light of the gospel, in light of God's mercy... He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Present your bodies as a, as a holy sacrifice. That, that idea, that, that means to be, to be set apart. This is what sacrifice means here. To be, to be set apart, to be devoted to God. To be offered over to him. And in this passage, the sacrifice that is to be offered over to God is you. That's us. And to that, he says at the end of verse 1, is your spiritual worship. You see, he's equating those two ideas. Offering ourselves to God as a sacrifice is what it means to worship Him. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's also worth noting here that when he uses this word body, that doesn't just mean your your physical self. It doesn't just mean flesh and and bones. It's a way of expressing uh, the entirety of who you are, your whole self. So soul and body or, or spirit and body, however it is you want to word it. Everything that you are he's saying, is to be offered up to God as a sacrifice. What's outside and what's inside, all of it. And it is a living sacrifice because in Christ you are alive. And for Paul here, offering up the totality of who you are to God, devoting all of yourself to him is true worship. That's the right response to the gospel. And it ought to be true in every area of our lives. That includes what we think. You worship God in the way you think. We don't have to go too far to see that. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to think rightly about God. That's worship. He's worthy. He's good. He's perfect. He's loving. We are to think rightly. But it's it's not just what we think. It's what we feel. Our our hearts, our affections, and it's it's even what we do, our, our actions. All of it is to be offered over to God. That's worship. You can see this, I think, really well in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, right as the author of Hebrews is finishing up his discussion of Christ being the final sacrifice for sin, the one who who brings us to God through his shed blood on the cross. He then goes on to say, beginning in verse 15, that through him then, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is how he defines sacrifice here. It is our lips which reveal what's in our hearts praising God. Our hearts and our affections ought to praise him, to acknowledge him. But he goes on to even address our actions. It's still there in Hebrews 13, he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Look at this, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's gospel-centered worship. It is devoting devoting the totality of who we are, our minds, our hearts, and our actions to pleasing God as a response to his grace toward us in the gospel. And if we're going to do this, we're going to have to think a little bit practically. We're going to have to look inward. We have to be personal in our own lives. And this means little house cleaning. It means that we might have to get rid of some idols that we've set up in our lives in the place of God. You know, I don't just mean physical idols, little wooden statues. That's sometimes what we think. We don't really get tempted too often with worshiping those kind of things. But we still have our physical idols. We've got our gadgets, right, that we just can't live without. But I mean the host of other idols that threaten in our lives to steal our worship away from God. And there are a lot of them. Calvin was right when he said our hearts are like perpetual idol factories. I think a big one in our, in our own culture, and our own time, is just the, the idol of personal Happiness. Yeah, the idol of personal happiness. And it's this constant question, well, what makes me happy? Where do do I find fulfillment? Where do I get my sense of value? Me. What makes me happy? And whatever that is, we worship it. So if it's money, Success, we devote ourselves to getting more of it. We devote ourselves to achieving it. If it's relationships or sex or whatever else it might be, we do whatever we can to justify it and excuse it and to get it on our terms. The reality is we can turn anything into an idol. We can even turn our our families into idols. Don't. Don't buy into the idea that idols are just always these bad things. No, we typically take good things from God and turn those into idols. We can turn our families into an idol we have this image of a perfect home and the perfect kids and the, the perfect marriage. And it's so important to us that we just cannot be satisfied and we cannot be happy unless we have it. And so we don't worship God anymore. We worship this ideal. We can worship anything. Want to know a good way to know what it is you worship? Look at what it is in your life that you devote yourself to. I've been using those words a little bit interchangeably throughout this sermon, the word worship and the word devote, because they both get at the same idea. What you worship in this life is what you devote yourself to. Our minds, our hearts, our actions. What is it devoted to? I think another big area we see this, and I can't help but mention it because it seems so prevalent, is the area of politics. Don't worry, I'm not going to go off the rails. But we all know Christians who sound more devoted that's the word, more devoted to their political ideas and political candidates than they do the Bible and Jesus. Listen, if we are more devoted to the things of this world than we are to the things that will last into the next, our worship is misplaced. And we end up laying up for ourselves treasure on earth rather than in heaven. So what I I want you to see is that being recreated by the grace of God for worship, it's not, it's not just a sweet thought. How, you know, how quaint. What a nice idea. Another, another doctrinal arrow for the quiver, right? That's not what it is. It's so much bigger than that. You see, being recreated for worship defines who you are. And as a result, how we are called to live the way we think, the way we feel, and what we do. And so I just just want to encourage all of us this morning to look at our lives and ask, what, what am I worshiping? What am I devoting my time and energy to? And if it isn't God, if it isn't Christ, and if it isn't the glorious, great things that he has revealed to us in his word, by grace, repent of that. And receive his mercy. And respond to that mercy. By giving yourself to him completely. That is your spiritual worship. And it is to be true everywhere in our lives all the time. It's pervasive. You see, we don't, we don't just worship on Sunday mornings when we come together here at church, right? We also are to be worshiping when we are scattered apart from one another throughout the week and all of the different places we go. We're still worshiping out there. This means that there are no areas of our lives, no areas of our lives that can be devoted to something other than God's glory. Remember, back in John 4, we just read that passage. Jesus moves the place of worship from a physical location in Jerusalem to a spiritual location within each person, within each believer in Christ. That means, in a very real sense, the true place of worship goes with us everywhere we go. That's why Paul can say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our worship goes with us in our lives. Take, take your, your work, for example, your job, what it is you do. In the sense that I'm talking about here, your work is a place of worship. You ever thought about it like that? It's not just this thing on the side. This thing over here, well, you know, God's not really concerned about that. That's just work. And so I can be shrewd if I need to be. Maybe a little unethical, you know, maybe a little vulgar, everybody else is. God doesn't really care about that. It's just work. I mentioned that example because I think it's one that we struggle with quite often. We see work as this thing we have to do, but not necessarily this thing we want to do. But I wanted you to know that if you're there, then it's God who's put you there. And he wants you there for as long as he keeps you there. And so in that time, you need to devote your work ethic to the glory of God. Work as though you are working for him because you are. That's worship. That's just one example. It's true everywhere, whether you're making dinner at home. Whether you're putting the kids to bed, talking with friends, going to school, or or whatever else it is that you might be doing. I want you to remember that in each of those moments, it is an opportunity for you to worship God with your mind, your heart, and your actions. We worship God everywhere. And I feel like it's worth mentioning, we also worship God when we come together here on Sunday morning. We are called to continue to meet with one another, to not neglect gathering together with one another, as the author of Hebrews says. So that we can hear the word taught, we can hear the word read, we can hear the word sung to God and over one another, and we can devote ourselves to God through through prayer and through serving and through giving. We worship when we're here too. So whether we come together or whether we are scattered into different places throughout the week We are called to worship God by being devoted to Him. We are to offer the totality of who we are over to Him. That's worship. That's what Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Worship. And as we close this morning, As we think about this, it's so vital that we not forget the basis of all of this, the basis for how this type of worship is possible in our lives. It's all because of the mercy of God. That's what Paul says here. By the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual worship. It is only in light of God's grace and mercy toward us in Christ that any of this is possible. That's why I I call this message gospel-centered worship. That phrase gospel-centered is not just a buzzword, it's reality. Because it shows us that the saving blood of Jesus on the cross redeems us from our sins if we would just trust in him. And that grace restores us to a right relationship with God. And ultimately, it empowers us by the spirit within us to live our lives for him. And so let's respond to the good news of the gospel with faith in Christ and with devotion to God and our lives. The entirety of our lives. And let's know that that is true worship. Let's pray. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.